is in almost like every Adam Curtis documentary, right? The idea that, or like <clears throat> the triumph of the radical individual and the idea that like, you know, well, in his view, and I don't know like how much I necessarily agree with it, considering yeah. that I think some of it is like a little bit simplistic, but you know, uh, definitely like the idea that it's very hard to kind of succeed in a protest movement when you're not willing to sort of like give yourself up for it. And you'd be, you know, these platforms kind of disincentivize you from sort of being a kind of face in the crowd because crucially, like, you know, you're supposed to, you know, transcend that. And you're supposed to like, when, you know, when you're given a platform and a voice, right? Like you're supposed to use it and amplify it. And like, you know, so I think that opens up like, a lot of interesting questions that I don't think we'll get on like to talk about with justice in this one, just because I think it could take us to quite a complicated place. But I do think that you're right in that way. Um, and I thought that like on that note, we can like start talking about some of the news of protests and stuff that you've sent me and uh, like the ways in which like platforms have kind of like featured in, in those types of stories. Um, one of the ones that I found very interesting were the protests in Thailand in uh, 2020, uh, that was responding to, among other things, like the government crackdown, like governments were cracking down on digital communications and services. Um, and like the retaliation towards that included like sets of digital expressions that range from like hashtags and niche ironic humor, but also crucially, as you mentioned, not just in Thailand, but in all the other examples that we were going to talk about as well, like this kind of not on placing the importance on physical space, but also just like being present in those in that type of physical space as well. So for people who like don't really know, including me actually, who don't know like the kind of the full kind of context of what was happening in Thailand in 2020, um, could you tell us like a little bit more about that? And also just like how, when you talk about like physical space and occupying that type of physical space, like what types of things were they doing and seeing? Sure. Uh, and again, I always do this. I don't know if it's like, ADD for lazy people. I always remember sort of the coda to my last point in the question. For the no, next it's like, answer. Yo, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but I would just say an important point uh, to think about from our conversation as well. And I think this will come up in different contexts, but I think social media platforms weaponize intimacy um, with the uh, now the constant bombardment we're seeing of sort of protect your data, protect your identity. Mm. And then on social media, how uh, journalists uh, and public figures constantly talk about sort of being attacked. You know, a lot of that is, is um, I think, a, a weaponization uh, against intimacy. It's a way of um, not being able to reveal what you really think, what you who you really are, and, you know, being pillared if, if mm. that's, if that's something that's truly vile or, um, uh, what's the word misanthropic. So I, I feel a lot of these platforms that claim artificially to bring us closer together, in fact, make us more fearful. Uh, I, what's that Schopenhauer, uh, paradox, the hedgehog's dilemma. We were talking about yeah. <laughs> Genesis Evangelion. Evangelion mentioned and so any fans of that will know. <laughs> I think a lot of social media is is the hedgehog's uh, dilemma mm. without um, any real reward when you uh, stay on those platforms. It's only really when you get offline that you, and I'm sure you've seen this, you sort of discover if you have any sort of real intimacy uh, with the people that you're maybe yeah. very close with online. Um, but we'll, to Thailand, you know, there's a lot of things... Um, for people who don't know, Thailand has long tried to be a more democratic space, but there are two huge power bases that historically 
have been at odds. Those would be sort of the rural laborers, uh, the urban capitalists, and then, you know, the individuals like any voters who just, when you only have two choices, have to be swayed by one or the other. And historically, the urban capitalists have far more resources. That changed, um, uh, I want to say, in the mid-2000s with the emergence of uh, Thaksin Shinawat, who was Mm. this truly disruptive candidate um, a populist who sought to sort of overturn this long-standing relationship uh, between what eventually became known as the Yellows, individuals who aligned themselves with urban capitalists and through that Thailand's monarchy, and the Reds, individuals who aligned themselves and often were made up of uh, the rural dispossessed. Now, that's a very uh, broad summary, but uh, is a good framework for what we want to talk about. So Thaksin Shinawat comes in, he's a telecom billionaire, but he wants to run like a like a populist who's not a neoliberal um, uh, in, in, in many ways, gives a lot of subsidies to uh, rural farmers, seeks to undo a lot of the political controls and power of the urban core, sets off a huge longstanding series of protests, many civil wars, within Mm. Thailand uh, over these battles of power. Eventually, the yellows come out on top with the support of the military. And then from that point on, we don't see really any true experimentations with um, legitimate democracy, however you feel about democracy under capitalism Mm -hmm. and if it's possible. (laughs) We instead see a very rigged and gerrymandered version where um, the power base is essentially, again, those same urban capitalists. Now with the military having a much more prominent role in civilian government, uh, in Thailand's parliament, uh, and the monarchy. So this sort of uh, tripartite uh, ruling uh, political dynamic returns. Uh, in 2020, um, I'm rusty on what exactly set it off. And when you look at the, the summaries in Thai media, it, it's not like a clear... Um, the tipping over of the fruit cart in Tunisia, from my understanding. But these protests start to erupt, uh, triggered mostly by the fact that um, uh, a young, charismatic Thai politician who leads a new party called the Future Forward Party, again, wants to be not as populist as Thaksin, but wants to introduce more of a social democratic element to Thailand that historically has been radically unequal between the rich and the poor. Mm. Because of this gerrymandered uh, political dynamic that we've talked about, essentially he's blocked, thwarted, arrested, uh, any sort of uh, bureaucratic hurdle they can throw at this party, they throw at them. This incites a lot of young people to start, again, questioning why does the monarchy have such a role in our country? Uh, Why does the military now have so much power over our country? and spurs these long-standing, reignites these simmering tensions that had always existed, but um, through the hegemony of how we understand what is and isn't acceptable political debate, only emerged in these various election cycles, first with uh, Thaksin and then later with the Future Forward Party. So these large protests erupt, and what's interesting about them is what you've alluded to. They sort of take the digital and in toying around with it, um, you sound like you start to see like a proto language of revolution in the sense that you would see these pieces of IP. So one piece, mm. people who don't know a hugely popular anime, 
Hamtaro, uh, <laughs> again, a hugely popular mm. anime, uh, Harry Potter, students would dress up like them. Young people would dress up like them. You would see um, uh, these, these strange protests where they would make like a marathon uh, yeah. But it would be a running against, let's say, a particular politician who these young people associated with the uh, suppression of democracy in their country. You would see people all dress up like Hamtaro and run around to represent like various critiques of uh, politics. You would see people doing um, spells to banish evil politicians while dressed up as Harry mm-hmm. Potter. So I think it was more the sense of we've globally been conditioned to be atomized and um, made to feel like we cannot be political actors outside of these very regimented ritualistic forms of participation like voting. And people turn to these supernatural uh, pieces of IP like a Hamtaro, like uh, uh, Harry Potter as a way, because they felt like the only way to actually, again, regain uh, who they were as citizens or transform a privatized discourse uh, that's heavily controlled in a state like Thailand, where you can go to jail for criticizing the monarchy in any shape or form online. You can go to jail for criticizing the military um, and so on and so forth. They felt they needed sort of these supernatural representatives because it, it was impossible to imagine doing that as an ordinary citizen. And through remixing this IP uh, in that Mm. way, it helped a lot of young people feel, I think, to sound like a cliche, brave enough, like these heroes, like these sort of invulnerable icons of IP, like Hemtaro never dies, Hemtaro never goes to jail, Um, uh, feel like they could, again, regain and be brave enough to participate as democratic citizens. So it's just, I think, an interesting example of um, sort of the antithesis of communicative capitalism, taking what normally would be communicative capitalism, this endless circulation of memes and and images and gifts and putting that into real life in a way to make yourself feel brave enough to reclaim um, your right to be a participatory democratic citizen. 